0: Do, 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 do. Good morning, Gary. We're back from Reno. Evening. Uh, we're back. We're having. I'm having better weather here than we had in Reno. As we're recording this, people on the East Coast may be suffering from a hurricane uh, shortly. True. But I'm enjoying being home. I've been out of town far too much this summer. <laughs>
1: I'm tempted to say that all Reno, all weather that's not Reno weather is better than Reno weather. It was hot and it was unpleasant, and I hate hot weather. You know that, Gary. And well, yes. And then, the, then you know the um the actual venue for anyone who's not been to uh, Reno, Nevada. Yeah, kind of a little flat bowl, a fake city stuck in the middle, lots of neon flashing machines, cigarette smoke, Gary. It was not pleasant.
0: It was rather bizarre. It was. As, as we said at the time, uh, a very in one way, a very science fictional setting, but unfortunately it was a dystopian science fictional <laughs>
1: setting. Well, I think our so. friend Alan Clay just pointed out the irony of all of us science fiction fans complaining about the casino. And that the casino basically meets all of the, the prerequisites to, to be just like a space station, though probably with not, well, not as clean air. And nobody really liked it very much.
0: No, it's a a sealed environment, admittedly. Well, it's a a 1950s space station, a sealed environment where people are still puffing away on their Chesterfields and so forth. But it was also ironic that uh, I I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to programming I wasn't on. But all I kept thinking was, shouldn't we be having panel after panel on... Gambling and science fiction shouldn't we be talking about. Because <laughs> I walked through the casino and I kept thinking about Pretty Maggie, Money Eyes. I kept thinking about Last Call. Uh, <laughs> kept, there was a Twilight Zone episode about a, 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 a addictive gambler. I'm sure there's a there's an article to be written somewhere, which probably has been written about about that. But the thing is, the thing that struck me is that except for our friend Ellen Clages who does know how to play poker and she's got a poker group she goes with, almost nobody. Even sat down at the slot machine for one minute.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty true. We sort of bounced through it looking for the bar, and for those of you who are listening to the podcast who don't get to World or World Fantasy and maybe haven't followed the discussion about it, generally the, the, the key thing for a lot of us is finding a, a central bar that we can meet at, and we struggled mm. to find that. That said… I did have, in amongst it all, some great times because there were friends to talk to. We got to catch up with people for podcasts. We recorded four podcasts that will come out in the coming months with Ian McDonald, Kim Stanley Robinson, Joe Walton, and Alistair Reynolds, all of which were terrific and were, were fun conversations. Yes. And got to talk about just science fiction and stuff to mainline the conversation that I think we all love so much.
0: That's what World Cons do for me. Uh, there's a point at which you know enough people in the field that any opportunity to get together with them yep. is, is wonderful. And the reason I ended up uh, going to, I don't know how many different conventions this summer, I was at the Stoker awards. I was at the, the Locus awards. I was at, uh, uh, Wisconsin and ReaderCon. and there are different groups of friends at every one of those, mm-hmm. uh, and, and almost no overlap, uh, which strikes me as suggesting that the field is more diverse, more dispersed, I guess, than it ever has been because th- there was a time not the first time I went to a world con that was pretty much the one that everybody would go to uh, uh, world fantasy in its beginning years was very much like a horror convention and yeah uh, and, and but but now uh, there there are a large number of people which I'm going to miss seeing uh, at at world yeah. fantasy who don't go to world cons yes uh, but if if I didn't go to world con there are people that I wouldn't have seen because they don't go to world fantasy
1: yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there are diverse audiences, <clears throat> which, which gives them their, each event its own unique char- you know, character. Uh, and will probably determine how people react. I mean, if you, again, if you're following the convention circuit and you hear somebody saying, I love this convention or I hate that one, quite often it's not because it's a good or a bad convention. It just suits their preferences a lot more. I think we also should both take this moment, this instant, to thank all of the nominators and voters for the Hugo Awards, for all of their support uh, for both of us. In this year's awards, because we both did quite well, and also to congratulate all of the winners. So congratulations to everybody, including one of our one of our loyal supporters, Cheryl Morgan. Yes, congratulations, Uh, Cheryl. And 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 I must say, a particularly warm doffing of the hat to my friend uh, Lou Andrews, who uh, picked up the best editor long form award, which pleased me a great deal. mm -hmm. And. Now, listeners, you need all to all pay attention. And now, publicly, I'm going to give Gary a good kicking. Gary, this is your good kicking, and you know why, don't you? I know I know why, but
0: I'm not sure my memory served me correctly. <laughs> because I can... Okay. We looked at, as everyone knows, uh, at the Hugo Losers Party, they post the entire nominating uh, sequence, the number of nominations for each category. I know what you're going to tell me now, aren't you? <laughs> The Coon Street Podcast was one nomination short of being on the ballot. Yes, it was. And i I don't recall having nominated this, but having been made to feel guilty for <laughs> the last couple of days of the convention, and um, and, and people saying self self promotion is the only way to go in this field, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to check my emails. I'm going to go back. I've not done this yet <laughs> because I I might I might have nominated this. That was such a long time ago. But if, if I did I'm sorry because, you know, uh,
1: we we missed the ballot. Oh, look, you know what? Quite seriously, I'm very happy with how, plays, how things played out. You could not have been happier for anybody than, than you know, you, know you, you would be for Chris Garcia, who won the best fanzine. The man was extraordinarily delighted. If anybody saw it on the web, was there or saw it on the webcast, he was very pleased. So, you know.
0: Well, you know, I, that's the thing. That that's the thing that I do enjoy, and um, I talked to uh, uh, Connie as well. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I guess never having won one, but Chris was obviously winning his first Hugo, and it's it's something that you dream of since you're a kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, you grow up with the Hugo Awards. I was for for reasons which I will be able to reveal in a few weeks. I'm working on a chronology of science fiction mm-hmm. uh, of the 50s, and I was noticing, okay, the Hugo Awards, you know, were first awarded in 1953, which means that almost everybody we knew know grew up knowing mm. the Hugo Award was sure. there. Sure, yeah. And, and from from the time... So so what he was doing was just expressing this, you know, expressing very dramatically and very entertainingly and very emotionally uh, what it means to, to, to win one of those things. And that takes all the cynicism out of you. I think it does. Connie was coming down from the stage and I was sitting in the front row uh, and came over and gave me a hug. And you could see her, Connie Willis. Yeah. The, it, and she's won a lot of these things. And it just... Her eyes were gleaming. I mean, she was utterly delighted. So I, I, I don't have any cynicism about, uh, no. about these awards at all, and I, I would love to have
1: one. <laughs> but if I continue to screw up our self-promotion, we may we, we never we never get there. That's okay. I mean, I remember uh, talking to Charles about this, and we're going to get off the subject of awards for a while now, uh, after this, but yeah. we did talk about it. And the thing is, you never work for a Hugo. Hugo's, or an award, an award in fact doesn't matter what the award is, it's never your goal uh, I edit you write criticism and review we both podcast for reasons that have nothing to do with awards, should they come they're a delight and if they don't it's completely cool um, yeah. this was a, a fun sort of group of results and I look to forward to nattering away about the World Fantasy Award uh, results when that happens later in the year uh, maybe even after the convention when I get back but that said, laying the subject of mm-hmm. awards to rest, as we finally should, to the great relief, I imagine, of the Akut Street Podcast listeners. Yeah, I don't think we need
0: to, to start handicapping too much anymore, although um, I, I, I will say that the, uh, the the more it's a surprise, the more delightful it is. Um, yep. And the, the reason I say that is because uh, you, as an editor, are in categories where you can and have been nominated successfully. Um, the, the one – Award, I got. I've gotten academic awards and that sort of thing. And I have had people ask me, how do you angle to get awards? And my answer is, I have no idea. I, no, I either. don't. Okay. I don't think you do. <clears throat> but I did get a World Fantasy Award a few years ago, and it was an utter. I mean, it was an utter shock to be on the ballot in the first place, because the way those are arranged, uh, the special award, uh, you just have. It could be almost anything. Yeah. And you just don't get over that. That's, I and mean, of course, you got yours last year, and Which you were was, as stunned as I was.
1: Absolutely, I was just delighted and thrilled and honoured, and you know, every time I walk past the, you know, the, the, the living room and see it sitting there, you know, like a, like a little shudder and a little thrill, you know, at the same time. Right, exactly. And did I tell you that uh, this is completely irrelevant? I don't know why I'm putting this in the podcast. That I was fortunate enough to um, bring home a lamp from Charles's house as a memento something science fictional that I will live with forever something you've
0: been wanting to do for a long time and the one thing we we, we could mention which is uh, nostalgia for both of us is that the night before we uh, drove from Mm. San Francisco over to Reno we had a little party down at the Locust House we did uh, which which I very rarely get to these days and and, and that was a very very pleasant evening and uh, uh, Bob Silverberg and Karen Haber came up and Cecilia Holland came down and it's one of those things that means something to to a certain group of people, but yes. a large group of people. That the back deck at uh, at the house in Oakland, yeah. uh, for a long time, was the American version of what I think of was the Clutes Flat in London. Everybody yeah. was there sooner or later. It's true. If you're yeah. hearing background noises, uh, I am. I have my window open, and that's what we're hearing. There, there's a bar down the street which is celebrating something. So now I'm. <laughs> They're having a very good time. I'm closing the window, though. There. <laughs> this, is, this is slick radio. This really is. This is so slick, yeah. Well, they were cheering the Hugo Award winners, let's say. That's good, that I good think people. Those, I, I should yeah, also... Those drunken, yeah. guys, those drunken guys in tank tops probably don't know what the Hugo Awards are. And you have the same reaction I do, I'm sure, that when you come back from any convention, mm-hmm. literally any convention, to a world in which these celebrities who you've been so happy to hang out with uh, the first day we, we were there, we were talking with with, with George Martin, who's 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 yeah. been to these things since he was a kid, and he's yeah. still George Martin. And it, and you come back to the world, and well, George Martin may be the exception this year. None of the people that you were proud to have seen mean anything to the people at your day job. That's very
1: true. But you know, that's why you keep going back, mm-hmm. so you can have that con that conversation on an ongoing basis to keep it up. And I think Joe Walton made a very valid point that with conventions, you know, sort of day one of the convention is the first day of the convention, day five is the last, and the next day in convention time is the first day of the next convention. The year in between exists in a different timeline to the days of the convention. And I've had, yeah. absolutely. And I've had the experience with people, usually with people who have better
0: memories than I do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of literally picking up the same conversation a year later. With that
1: boring, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, or, or uh. <laughs> because I, that wasn't how I was looking at it. No, I should also tell you that I have taken delivery this week, dear listeners, and Gary, of mm. prototypes for three Crude Street T-shirts. Excellent. We are on the cusp. There's a little bit of tweaking to do before I sort of make. I mean, you could technically buy them now if you wanted to, but there's a little bit of tweaking. I think the images are a little bit large need to be made smaller but basically they seem to have come out pretty well so you know don't think we're making money off this but if you ever craved your own t-shirt where you know you which would have such you know sort of legends on it as you know the could shoot podcast always certain often correct i think it's wonderful and of course the one which is beginning to pertain at this moment that i was wearing yesterday that had my children laughing gary i think we're rambling I think that's probably our motto, and I think that uh, people are showing
0: enormous patience in putting up with that. Yes. I have my name on one t shirt, which I have one copy of, mm-hmm. years ago at the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, which has wonderful t shirts generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a guest scholar there, and it turned out to be the one year that the cover illustration was Cthulhu. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I not only have the World Fantasy Award, which is. Um, except for people who understand who Gay and Wilson and H.P. Lovecraft is. Let's face it. Out in the real world, the World Fantasy Award is the ugliest award that <laughs> you can have. Wow. Well, I yeah. love it. I'm, I'm very fond of it. I'm a huge fan of Gay and Wilson's. I'm a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, but people who don't know either of those people think this is a, a, a lump of misshapen metal. Um, mm-hmm. So now I have, I have Lovecraft on my World Fantasy Award and I have Cthulhu on my T-shirt. And Gary, I think we're rambling, is a step up for me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also have a Kickstarter project I'm thinking about doing. I have to email George about it. I've been prodding George for a long time to create uh, – George Martin to, – to create Hugo Loser's Pins. Now, just so you understand, dear – and this is getting back to awards, Dan. Uh, yeah. Just so you understand, dear listeners, if you've never been to the Hugos, never met anybody – for, for many years now, Gar- you know, there has been a Hugo's Losers Lu- party every year. It was started by mm-hmm. Gardner Dessois, and by George Martin many years ago, back in the 70s, I think. And somewhere along the line, George started handing out Hugo Loser ribbons, which go along with like you're on your badge, just as you get at Worldcon. You get little ribbons for being a program participant everything else. And I was suggesting that we should have little crashed rockets. That would be a wonderful idea. I think it is, too. So I'm looking into what it takes to get these things made. Then I might run a Kickstarter project and then give them to George to give out. So here you go. Forget these ribbons. We'll have everybody loves their Hugo pins. Let's have crashed rockets as well. I think that would be really cool. So we're going to look into that. That said, what's happening in your science fictional week, Gary Wolf? Science fictional week. Well, this is my first week of actually
0: going back to classes and things uh, and, and getting involved with the university. Um, I turned in my column, as you know, last week. We've, mm-hmm. uh, one of the books um, that I reviewed, which is, uh, I think, coming, I think it's a September book. Yeah. Which I think we should call attention to, this is the first volume of The Best of Caitlin R. Kernan. Yep. Um uh, Who was, uh, who, incidentally enough, uh, will be uh, one of the guests of honor along with Peter Straub at next year's ReaderCon. Yeah. And I think one of the things we don't talk about much in this podcast is is that area of what is sometimes called dark fantasy and sometimes called horror and sometimes called um, Shirley Jackson-esque kinds of things yeah. and sometimes called gothic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not there's not really a good... What Peter Straub likes to call this is literary horror, yeah. um, which I think is a valuable term. I don't know that any of these terms exactly describes what, what Caitlin Kernan's short fiction looks like.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I have to say my feeling... Okay, I first encountered the name Caitlin Kiernan as being somebody in the same circle as Poppy Z. Bright back when Poppy was mm-hmm. writing horror.
0: Yeah, yeah and they've so, collaborated on
1: stories. Yeah, so, so that's that's how I was aware of her. She was somebody who was Poppy Bright-esque in my mind, even though she never was on paper. But uh. what I've come to realize in the last couple of years is what she actually is is one of our best and most, um, I guess, flexible short story writers, you know, I mean, she's enormously gifted as a short story writer and has written a handful of stories for me that I think are terrific, and you're right, what they do is they take aspects of genre and treat them as subservient to story, that so that what she's producing are things that aren't genre fiction per se, but things that use genre fiction, so for example she'll combine horror elements and science fiction elements into one story as she does in her story in Eclipse 4 this year um, or maybe got mm-hmm. something which is, much more, which is much more of a direct, straight science fiction story or whatever. And that's her her, her gift, I guess, is her ability to combine these things into really com- amazingly compelling narratives.
0: Well, for one thing, her style is uh, – uh, and some people might find it challenging because it's a very complicated, very literary style, uh, which will make allusions to Lovecraft. She has – the best of Caitlin Kernan uh, includes one story which is – Clearly Lovecraftian, and there are allusions to Lovecraft and other stories, but there are allusions to French Symbolist poetry. There mm-hmm. are allusions to William Blake. She's uh, and and you're right. When she works, she does something that relatively few writers in that sort of quasi supernatural realm do. She works out uh, the anthropological and paleontological and scientific underpinnings of her, or in a way because she is a uh, she's published articles I think on paleontology. She has. I mean, she's a scientist she's yeah she was trained that way uh, and and so that informs her uh, that there's a rationalist underpinning and i the thing that strikes me is interesting about that kind of thing and i think you can see oh a handful of other writers who who can do similar things i think well peter straub has frequently done that laird baron can mm-hmm. do that sort of thing of what i think of as rationalist horror horror which is not based on simply uh a, a, a paranoid outlook, like your worst fears are going to come true, yeah. but that works out the implications of how that can come about in, in, in a very sophisticated way. So she is, uh, it becomes apparent to me and the best. And, and the reason I'm recommending the book, mm. uh, I would probably recommend volume two even more, even though I haven't seen it because that's going to have more of her more recent fiction in it. Yeah. But you can, you can see this progression from somebody who is in love with words, in love with language. Uh, she made up a lot of words. She used a lot of these portmanteau, uh, adjectives and that sort of thing uh, to somebody who's just getting more and more and more in control of the instrument. It's almost, it, th- this is going to be weird. And I, I, I have reviewed the book, and this is not something I said in the review, but it's one of the things we can do in this podcast is I can say things that I thought about putting in the review yeah, sure. and didn't. And one of the things I thought about, one of the people I thought about comparing her to was Maria Callas. Really? Um, one of the great coloratura sopranos who were earlier in her career was. Enormously uh, talented But um, Not completely in control In yeah. other words She would take these phenomenal flights And then she she made a comeback sometime It must have been in 1954 or something When she suddenly had the same uh, Vocal range But much better under control And, and it's a difficult thing to describe yeah. It's difficult to describe somebody who writes Really strong uh, prose Earlier in their career And you realize this person is some kind of a a a, a a a prose genius, yeah. But but not entirely um, not entirely uh, controlling the voice. I, I I'm trying to think of another example. I guess. Uh, um, oh, i We can pick Bob Dylan. I guess if you want to <laughs> use Maria
1: Callas. Okay, sure. And yeah. Bob
0: Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan never knew how to sing, but yeah. he learned how to control his lack of ability to sing yeah. very well. Yeah. So his. Saw his, his performances became more and more powerful the more he learned uh, what he could do with his voice.
1: Yes. yeah. I, I guess what strikes me the most about Kiernan, given the territory she, she sometimes writes in, is that she doesn't pick up any of that kind of clotted, gothic, rich kind of prose. She has really clean, clear prose. I mean, you're saying about following her, but what I've been struck with in her stories over the last five years that I've been reading is just how clear and Economical and lean, her prose is. Uh, well,
0: that's what's happened over the last twenty or uh, twenty, almost twenty years now. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's 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 absolutely clear, and again, that's something which I think is, um, uh, an, a factor that's entered into in, into that area. And I don't like to use the term horror fiction. I know Caitlin doesn't like to use yeah. the term horror.
1: Well, I don't think it's really accurate for her uh, either. I, but yeah. I don't
0: think it's accurate for her either. Uh, but essentially, the Um, the characteristic, well, let's face it, Lovecraft was over the top in his prose frequently. Yeah. Um, When you're a certain age, I mean, you really, I think, have to approach Lovecraft when I did, uh, when I was a teenager. And you're just absolutely, um, stunned by, uh, uh, you know, eldritch Sumerian darkness and the (laughs) unnameable stuff and that sort of thing. You think, this is great. And then pretty soon you realize, this is really imprecise. These yes. are wonderful words, but they don't mean anything. Uh, and uh, my famous, the famous uh, essay that Edmund Wilson did uh, on, on Lovecraft back in must have been the late 40s or early 50s, um, was something along the lines. Uh, he, he was utterly contemptuous of Lovecraft and ve- yeah. very unfair, and it's a mean spirited essay. But he said <laughs> in one of his essays, surely if you, you shouldn't use words like indescribable an unnameable and unimaginable. Uh, in describing something which is going to turn out to be an invisible whistling octopus at the end of the story. <laughs>
1: yeah. And there's
0: something to that criticism because there Lovecraft is. and Lovecraft's circle tried to create this effect through sheer force of words alone. Yeah. Um, and I think the best writers in that tradition, and Lovecraft's tradition goes not only into modern horror, I mean, yeah. uh, there's, the, there, there's clearly a tradition of Lovecraftian fiction that's still alive, but yeah. there are also the people who grew up loving Lovecraft who learned to do other things with it, who learned to incorporate that as one of, as you say, one of the tools that they could use. Yeah. Um, and then to write with very, very precise language. Uh, and there, there are a number of horror – well, I, I'm using the word as shorthand now um, – who can write with, with very clear language. Thomas Ligotti writes very clear language. Yeah. Um, uh, obvious, obviously Peter Straub does. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, – Oh, probably several others, and that's something that horror grew out of. And essentially, um, let me quote—I quote, quote something Peter Straub said in an essay in Locus um, several years ago that sure. got him in a lot of trouble at the time. He said, "Horror is a house that horror has moved out of." Okay. By which he meant it's a box. It's a box that was clearly uh, a genre label that uh, more or less got defined. Uh, Essentially, by Weird Tales and by Lovecraft, and then got redefined again in the 70s by uh, William Peter Blatty and uh, and and Ira Levin, a sort of mainstream thing, and then 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 it, it sort of branched off into into the parts of horror writing that wanted to continue those traditions in that yeah. way, yeah, uh, uh, and then and another branch of it went off into it's it's a a, a kind of literary horror, which is what. Peter thinks of himself as writing and another branch went into just general uh, horror is a technique which can be used along with science fiction along with realistic characterization uh, the, the, the thing that struck me about to get back to Caitlin Kernan for a minute the thing that struck yeah. me about her novel uh, The Red Tree which was a finalist for the World Fantasy Award a couple of years ago yeah. is that it's a very good uh, novel about a relationship it's a novel about a uh, the, 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 she writes artists very well she knows what artists' yep. problems are and uh, you couldn't really get out of that reading it as a horror novel without missing a good three-quarters of what the novel was about. Yeah, yeah. I guess, like reading yeah. – there's a William Faulkner story called A Rose for Emily, uh, mm-hmm. which is a kind of southern gothic story. And southern gothic is another tradition that uh, Caitlin's associated with. And I've seen it anthologized as a horror story. And, well, yeah, it is. Yeah. But – it's also a William Faulkner story, and if all you're seeing is this uh, really creepy gothic aspect to it, you're missing a lot of what's going on in the
1: story. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Um, I was just thinking that – I mean I, I look at, say, a couple of the stories that she had out this year. Uh, there's tidal forces from Eclipse Four, which is the, the story about of what appears to be, you know, t- two women in a relationship, uh, and one of them is struck by a black hole. It begins to eat her from the out, you know, the inside out, leaving a hole in her in her side. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a very powerful, emotional story based around a science fiction slash horror con- conceit. And then there's a story that's in Ellen Datlow's supernatural noir called The Maltese Unicorn which is just a terrific story, and it's this Chandler-esque supernatural fantasy. And she carries it off perfectly, I mean, note perfectly. It's really, really well done. Um, I mean, I think you're right to say that as impressive as Volume 1 of The Best of Caitlin Kiernan is, and it is really impressive, Volume mm. 2 is going to be even more more impressive. Uh, in fact, I think a chunk of what will make up Volume 2, I think, is currently up for the World Fantasy Award, uh, in its capacity as the Ammonite Violin, her latest collection.
0: Yes, her collection.
1: So, Well, one of the things
0: that the, 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 the case of Caitlin Kernan, I think, teaches us is that the um, sort of bifurcation or trifurcation, if that's a word, of genre readers, mm-hmm. uh, the, the number of people who will read science fiction but don't like to read horror and fantasy, or th- they'll read one thing or another. And the field has outgrown that to some extent. Yes. There, there are too many writers. Another writer who's up for the um, uh, World Fantasy Award this year is Graham Joyce. Yeah. Now, is Graham Joyce? And Graham Joyce, early in his career, was, was, was uh, classified as a horror writer. Yes. Um, to some puzzlement on his part, um, and then his uh, uh, you know classic novels, *The Facts of Life*, which I think are classic novels, and *The yes. Limits of Enchantment*. Yeah. Are well, they're fantasy novels, but they're extremely literary and, and, and smart novels. Um, and the one he's up for this year is The Silent Land, which frankly, in terms of its plot, is very familiar. Yeah, People yeah. You know, get caught in a, a skiing accident and they return to this village and nobody is, nobody is there. Um, and how many stories have begun with that premise? Is it a fantasy premise, a horror premise, or a science fiction premise? You don't know. Yeah. Um, and if, if you say that I'm not going to read this because it doesn't resolve itself in a science fictional way, you're missing some really good writing there.
1: I think you are. I mean, his great gift is the ability to craft character rather than anything else, and it comes out in those books brilliantly.
0: But there's this super strata of writing, which includes a lot of the writers that you and I admire, that uh, you really are doing a disservice to when you try to locate it in one genre, even if you use uh, sort of uh, weaselly terms like uh, the literary fantastic or... uh, or interstitial, or so forth and so on. The fact is, yes, it's it's good it's good literary writing which uses yep. the resources of our genre, and it's being done by people who come out of uh, and are familiar with and are comfortable with the materials of our genre, um, our genres, I should say.
1: Discussing Caitlin Kiernan makes me th- you know, sort of think something. Apart from the fact that there was something magical in the water in 1964, because uh, Caitlin was born in 64, so was Joe Joe Walton. I've got a funny feeling Ian MacDonald was born around then as well hmm. so I wonder if one thing we're seeing is a generational change in the um, major writers in the field at the moment I think I think we may be seeing a generation of writers who uh, grew up at a time
0: when you could begin to see these uh, boundaries dissolve to some extent um, and, and, and as we've talked about before in this podcast Joe Walton writes about this very movingly and very persuasively um, and among others, where her uh, her heroine, essentially, uh, is, is reading fantasy, is reading science fiction, yep. is reading Zelazny. Um, and the, the, the people born in 64, let's assume they were reading in the mid to late 70s. That's when they came into the field. Yep. And <clears throat> by that time, you have a lot of interesting things going on. This is after the new wave. This is after, again, yep. Dangerous Visions. But you're still in a period of time when... You have, for example, Zelazny teaching you, teaching the world that you can write high fantasy in a hard-boiled style. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a phrase that uh, that David Hartwell coined that I uh, loved, which uh, which he used to describe some of the fantasy that was coming out of that period, uh, sword and sorcery procedurals, well. uh, taking taking the logical uh, plot development of a of, of a mystery story or a police a police procedural, setting up the worlds of your fantasy. Uh, the, the, the conditions of your fantasy world, and then playing it out in some other genre. In other words, you could use the setting of one genre and the techniques of another genre. Um, so you do start getting hard-boiled science fiction novels. Uh, you start getting things like Neuromancer, yes, uh, which draw on the noir tradition and they draw on the cybernetic tradition as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Very and much, I think. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit too old for that, and you're probably. You know you? What year? <laughs> you know what, what year were, okay, what year were you
1: born in, Jonathan? I was born in '64, so you're, we're both a little bit old for that, maybe. I, I was actually born pretty much at the same, within a very short period of time with Joe Walton. Uh, I think we're like a month or two apart. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 well, you you would have had the same experience. Very much. Um, I mean, among others, resonated for me for all sorts of reasons. But one is that we were that we're not that far off in age. Uh, I mean, she was born in Wales and. 1964. I was born in Belfast in 1964. We had very different life experiences, but science fiction flowed past at about the same rate, I think. But I think the other thing that has
0: to—it's uh, it, it, apparent in Joe's novel, and you and I have talked about this as well. Uh, in, in, in Joe's case, both in her life and in her novel, yep. you know, growing up in Wales, uh, science fiction becomes something that you—you you access through something that your dad has, yep. or, or something that you come across in a used bookstore. In other words. You cannot use somebody's birth date to predict when what science fiction they're going to first discover. That's true. Uh, I, I know people today who are in their 20s who started out uh, in science fiction reading the Foundation Trilogy Yep. Uh, because it's what you come across um, and by and large it's not until you've been reading, my experience at least is this, uh, not until I've been reading science fiction for a few years was I starting to catch up on what was being written currently because I was buying used books. Yep. Uh, and I was I, I'm, I'm, even I am too young to have read Ray Bradbury when the Martian Chronicles or the Illustrated Man came out or to have read Lovecraft but those are the books I found in, in, in used bookstores that I could afford yep. oh so, yeah so you're Your experience of science
1: fiction is what books you have access to when you're at the age when you begin reading it. Very much. I mean, for me, as I've said before on the podcast, I started off reading Citizen of the Galaxy, but I started off reading it, you know, picking it up in a public library when I was eight. Exactly. Um, And then there was what was on the bookshelves here locally during that time. The point where Joe and I overlap is, you know, the the first Heinlein novel I ever got the chance to buy as a new release was Number of the Beast. And that was the same mm-hmm. for her as well. The idea that you, you know that there was a new Robert—I mean, a new Robert Heinlein novel. Oh my God, that was un, unimaginably exciting in 1980. The fact that it was it's, utterly rancid yeah.
0: is beside the point. Yeah, we um, well we we mentioned on the uh, 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 our discussion with Joe Walton. We were talking about a. Uh, briefly, we talked about a Robert Charles Wilson story called "Divided by Infinity" about yes. a used bookstore in Toronto, where you, where you, you go into the store and find that all your favorite writers, who you thought had died, have new novels that you've never seen before, mm. and that's exactly the feeling that you're describing now. It's the same feeling I had when I realized that Bradbury's still writing; he's not.
1: He, 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 there's a living feel out there. Um, of course, it doesn't. So, so doesn't <laughs> yeah, sorry, I yeah, continue.
0: No, no. I was going to say that the uh, the the point of entry at the field um, was for me defined by public libraries, as it was, with mm-hmm. you, and by used bookstores. Yes. Uh, and even though here's here's a question which is worth considering, uh, and we could, we should talk to some very young people who started reading science fiction. That we've talked about the decline of the independent bookstore, the disappearance of the independent bookstore. Yeah. The used bookstores um, are in, in trouble, but they're not as much in trouble. Yeah. But I wonder if the experience of not being able to go into a used bookstore and just discover stuff that you never thought about uh, might go away. And one of the responses we had to an earlier podcast, which is very correctly um, uh, correcting what, what I think I said, was that for somebody who grew up not only with Amazon, but with ABE books or with uh, a Libris or with some of the, um, you know, used book services, you can absolutely discover science fiction on the uh, on the web. Yeah. And there are ways of doing yeah. that. Uh, but there's still that point of, I, I don't know if people are starting in reading science fiction with older works the way you and I did, or if they're starting in Reading very very popular books and by science fiction when we say this we're talking about the whole
1: Yeah, set of it's genres. it's it's hard to know. I mean, I've got one test case in front of me, my nearly ten year old daughter Sophie, who is starting to read in the field now. Admittedly, her house is full of this stuff, so it's easy to um, stumble over. But she's discovering science fiction through television more than anything else. I mean, she's addicted to the um, the adventures of Sarah, uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures, you know, the Doctor Who spinoff. Mm-hmm. And then just recently discovered a TV show called Black Hole High, about a high school with a wormhole on the on the grounds, and that's her gateway to science fictional concepts at the very least, and probably will continue to be as she slowly sort of branches out into reading in the field. But certainly not. Actually it's, it's interesting. At least here, secondhand bookstores are nearly impossible to find, and when you do, they usually have terrible arrays of science fiction. But that's unfortunate, but uh, because the same thing's happening here, a lot
0: of the used bookstores have simply disappeared, and the ones that uh, that are there don't have very interesting selections of science fiction. They certainly don't have science fiction of twenty or thirty years ago. Yeah. Uh, so you may be right. Maybe the entry point for science fiction now is TV and movies. I mean, yeah. Um, I, I I wonder. Uh, now that there's discussion going on about whether Ridley Scott is going to do what he claims will be either a sequel or a prequel to Blade Runner, and there's discussion about uh, the Neuromancer movie, as there has been for a good 25 years now, Um, I wonder if Blade Runner sent people into reading science fiction. Um, my, My guess is that Blade Runner might have done that. My guess is that none of the other Philip K. Dick movies Would have done that. I'm almost certain that somebody who saw a movie like Total Recall and then decided to um, uh, go read Dick's story, we can remember it for you
1: wholesale, Mm. might have been mightily
0: puzzled as what was going on there.
1: (laughs) Or anybody who read, uh, who watched, went and saw Blade Runner and then read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Frankly, right, would be somewhat thrown. Um, Yeah, I've got no doubt that uh, Blade Runner and um, Neuromancer have had an enormous impact on the real world we live in. A phenomenal. Uh, impact. Because I think they've inspired a whole bunch of people to go out and try and create those things and make them real. And when when we talk to our friends in the UK, at least, and I suspect this is
0: probably very, very dominantly true in the UK, probably somewhat dominantly true in Australia and and, and somewhat less dominantly true, is the influence that Doctor Who has had on people. Oh, sure. Because when you talk to anybody who's grown mm-hmm. up, first of all, it's the longest – I don't know if it's the longest-running TV series in the history of the world, but it's certainly the longest-running TV uh, concept and probably yeah. it's the longest running sort of shared universe because as, as far as i know doctor who hasn't basically violated or, or significantly altered the conditions of what time lord ism is for uh, for what 40 some years now no not um, at all no I guess. so so that there are a lot of conditions of science fiction that people are trained in through something like doctor who which has always been from the beginning surprisingly literate yeah um and maybe people coming I, I know a number of people in the UK who became science fiction readers because of Doctor Who yeah um, I suspect that if we go back far enough there was a generation in the states that may have become science fiction readers because of Twilight Zone um, but um, movies I don't know I, I don't know if movies have had as much of an influence as TV because they're just not as ubiquitous and because historically they've been so different from science fiction literature
1: yeah well it's true I, they have I don't know. These are curious times. Very curious times. There's been a debate going on among
0: uh, a discussion board in the Science Fiction Research Association of whether a neuromancer movie is a really bad idea or a really good idea, and people seem to be coming down on one side of that question or the other with nobody in between.
1: (laughs) Is anybody pointing out that that it, it feels almost like it's already been done, that somewhere between Tron and Blade Runner we've kind of got it anyway?
0: Well, I think Blade Runner. We had there's there's a story which may be apocryphal, but I think I've seen it in an interview where, where Bill Gibson yes. walked out of Neuromancer because he he felt this was too close to what he was imagining. Yes. Um, and I think that's true. I think that Neuromancer has become I don't Neuromancer has become part of the background noise of, 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 of modern culture. It's uh, you could make a movie out of it, but you know you could you could you could make a movie out of Raymond Chandler's Farewell My Lovely again, and it'd probably still
1: be a pretty good movie. I think that's true I mean I don't know I, I actually would kind of like to see um, a movie of, of Neuromancer to see what they would do with it uh, to see how they would tweak it because one of the things I think you'd have to do is you'd have to change it slightly to make it seem like a cutting edge story again I think you, you would you know a, a um, lot's happened since then I don't know it's, it's,
0: it's, the funny thing is has cyberspace become the sub the stuff of nostalgia now I mean mm-hmm. is is the world of Neuromancer about as um, archaic to us as the
1: world of Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles or Dashiell Hammett's San Francisco? Possibly so because if you think about it, in 1985 or whatever it was when the book came out it cast off, it cast out a really quite a romanticized version of what a computer universe would be like. And now we've lived with one for this last 30 years, particularly as laid out by mm-hmm. our good friends at Apple and Corning and other places. And it's not going to be like that, you, you know. And there are people who, I think, look back very fondly. I mean, you actually could see it in this, in that Tron sequel they put out last year last year, earlier this year. There was that nostalgia mm. for an image of cyberspace that really is probably never going to happen unless we get particularly ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't know whether you... Have you read any of the culture novels by Ian Banks? Yes, the first few. There's one of them. I forget which one. Uh, it might have been Look to Windward, where one of the culture ships comes tearing into the solar system uh, to, 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 it's a battleship of some kind and it actually does a great big flaming skid through the sky with two great big flaming skid marks behind it, mm. as, as, it um. as it screeches to a halt and, and it's laying out deliberately using very complicated technology this fake trail right that's kind of what's happening here if if you want cyberspace you have to manipulate things at great expense and difficulty to make it appear like some nostalgic version of how you think it should be
0: one of the things that strikes me about some of the online games that are that that, that are um, like like, let's say call of duty which i've got friends who play that and i've got grandkids who play that and there are four or five versions of it now and um outside of the fact that that particular one seems to deal with contemporary urban warfare to a great extent um, the, the essential experience of that doesn't seem to me, and the experience of a lot of the Xbox games, doesn't sound to me a lot different going back before Banks to the opening of um, Arthur Clarke's The City and the Stars. That's 1953, correct? Yeah. 1948 yeah. if you want to count against the fall of night. The opening of that album is is involved with fighting dragons and monsters and things, and what we later learn is a virtual reality experience, mm-hmm. which he has to do to, uh, to entertain himself because there's almost nobody left in the world. Yes. Um, so, so there is that sense, if you go back before that, the, the first really kind of virtual world depicted in fiction probably anywhere was, I would guess, Ian e. Forster's The Machine Stops, which is what, 1911 or 1905 mm-hmm. the exact date. That sounds about um, right. So yeah, so that that idea is, is, not, is not cutting edge. What's cutting edge, uh, and one of the things we were talking about before this, is the extent to which the world we live in now is unimaginable even to the science fiction of the 80s. Um, there was a, a couple of things that uh, this week in the states the Merriam-Webster yeah. dictionary announced which new words um, are, are being introduced and I think last year or maybe the year before, maybe it's this year uh, the, one of the hot new words is app yeah, uh, no science fiction writer, not, not only did no science fiction writer imagine an app they didn't imagine any set of circumstances that could <laughs> lead to an app being, uh, being part of our language, true um, Two of the words, by the way, that are being retired this year are aerodrome, uh, which, I, which is a word I love. And yes. I, I wanted to write to Merriam-Webster and say, if you guys are retiring the word aerodrome, you haven't been reading any steampunk at all, have you?
1: <laughs> we're not done with aerodromes yet. And, no, and would, we're not done with aerodromes And, and honestly, given, given the, world, the way the world we live in is, wouldn't you rather go out to the local aerodrome than to the local airport?
0: I love aerodromes. There was a great, I think it was a Rex Warner novel from the nineteen thirties called Aerodrome, which was clearly a kind of science fictional. It was that same sort of uh, mentality in, in, in Britain in the nineteen thirties that the aviators are going to take over the world. That basically shows up, you know, in, in H. G. Wells's film Things to Come. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful concept, and it's not. It's not disappearing from literature. It may be disappearing from common usage. Yeah. Um, I don't think they should retire the word aerodrome. The other word which I noticed they're retiring is the word cassette player. Which they is wonderful. Should, because- they should. I mean, cassette player is not showing up in fiction, except in maybe fiction that takes place in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, it's not being used in common usage anymore. <clears throat> but that's also one of those interesting words that sort of came and went. As science fiction, by and large, didn't anticipate it. And it, it it entered our lives, eight track tapes, boom boxes, uh, that sort of thing. All that all that technology has come and gone. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering if steampunk 20 years from now is going to be talking about cassette players.
1: I doubt it. I doubt they ever will. Um, um, well, it, it's too it's too in fact it's too new for steampunk and too old for science fiction.
0: Yes, it is, but. My my question. This is another book I was reviewing in the September October column. I guess. Yeah. The third volume of Scott Westerfeld's um, really very enjoyable trilogy. Uh, the, the you know the uh, Goliath, yeah, yeah. Emoth and Goliath, um, and about about an alternate World War One, which is full of uh, wonderful uh, allusions to oh not just. Steam ships and, uh, and 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 steam uh, living balloons and so forth, but Pancho Villa and Nikola Tesla and this sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, well, by the time you get to Nikola Tesla as your official mad scientist, which I think science fiction has done, steampunk has moved out of the Victorian era. Steampunks moved up to the era of World War One. Yeah. So, isn't it going to isn't the next logical step that steampunk's going to deal with the twenties? And I mean, you you, you can't just keep well. milking
1: the Victorian era forever. But let me put it this way. When you begin to move too far forward, does it stop becoming steampunk? Well, okay. Then there's, maybe we're going to start calling it electropunk. There probably is a movement out there. <laughs> I like was that. reading about electropunk this mo- uh, last night. <laughs> you okay. were? I mean, I'm not, even be- I'm not even remotely kidding. I'm reading two novels at once, 2312 by Stan Robinson and Planes Runner by Ian McDonald. Uh, and Planes Runner features a 14-year-old boy Jumping through dimensions in search of his kidnapped father. Yeah. And in one of the dimensions, there's a version of Earth, and it's pretty much electropunk Earth. And I'm pretty sure that he, may, he may even use that word, that term in the text. So that's coming. <laughs> I think it's coming.
0: I, I, I have no doubt it's coming. I think Gibson, again, whether, whether we think of William Gibson as a science fiction writer anymore or not, he's somebody who's very, very sharp in thinking about. Um, what he calls cool hunting of yeah. future trends and the going all the way back to the Gernsback continuum which is not electropunk but he suggested the idea of science fiction set in a universe like the one that Gernsback imagined. Yes. Um there's a bit of that in these um, a couple of a few recent stories that Eileen Gunn and Michael Swanwick have written. Yes, yeah. that are very much a kind of it's not quite a steampunk universe it's really more a Gernsbackian world that they're talking about. Yeah. And I, I think that and that puts us, okay, Gernsbach's Ralph one to 4 was 1911, uh, and then he d- was doing modern electrics. But it, it, his editorials from amazing stories from the mid- late 20s to the early 30s, he clearly had a vision of the world that was based on really good batteries. Yeah, yeah. He loved batteries. He And <laughs> guess what? We've got a world full of really good batteries now.
1: <laughs> we do, we do. I saw, I, I actually, it's funny you should say that because I was watching some uh, stuff on YouTube following the uh, retirement of Steve Jobs the other day, yeah. and they're showing him talking about you know the phenomenal battery life they've got for iPod, and this is in 19- when the first one was launched, mm-hmm. and it can go for you know, three hours at a time, and you're going well. First of all, I remember when three hours would have been phenomenal, and yeah. now you know you look at it and you think well, iPad will play movies for six or eight hours at a time. All right. You know, if not longer, I mean, I just crossed I crossed the Pacific, and my iPad did not give out on me. You know, this and case- that's a very impressive, kind of, a, but but again, it's it's the sort of
0: unglamorous parts of technology, and this is one of the things where I give credit uh, to to Gernsbach for. I mean, Gernsback is much maligned as somebody who may have ghettoized and pulpified science fiction, but at the same time, he thought about specific issues uh, that dealt with a, a lot of them were very naive. But that issue turned out to be one of the ones which yep. science fiction wasn't very interesting because, let's face it, it's hard to make a very suspenseful story out of battery life.
1: That's um, true. Although I'm sure somebody has done it. But battery life is what we talk about now. We do. Very much. It's a, it's a big deal in, in uh, to us. So <sighs> It is. I'm running out Ooh. of puff, Gary. We've podcast. Are we rambling? Oh, yeah, of course we are. We're not rambling. I'm just we're not rambling. We're talking different. about battery life, which is...
0: Which is rambling, those... Gary. That's Gary.
1: Okay. <laughs> it's not science fiction. However, the point that it comes from is a very germane one. and I, I think you, you, know, you make an interesting point that the way science fiction or fantasy formulates language uh, or predicts language is flawed in the sense that it doesn't predict the abbreviating of language. It predicts a strange... Um, combinations of words or extensions of words, you know, where you know, it, as you say, app would never have been something a science fiction writer come up with. They would have come up with some longer alternate version of application or something, rather than that natural truncation yeah. abbreviation. Yeah. of science, science fiction, science fiction
0: language. By by that, I mean made up words that appear in science fiction. I'm not talking about science fiction's treatment of language. If we could talk about there. There are a lot of terrific science fiction novels about language yeah. and culture from Jack Vance to sure. Suzette Hayden Elgin to most recently Embassy Town. Yeah. I'm talking about the words that science fiction just made up uh, from the 20s through the 60s at least, that electro converters, uh, glass steel domes, the idea was you would make up words by adding syllables to words. Uh, and the, the English language works by contracting words, in other words, yeah. uh, science fiction. The, the 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 science fiction invented words would work fine in German because German loves to add suffixes and prefixes to sure, make long sure. rambling words out of it but it, but in a sense no 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 science fiction writer would ever they might have thought about uh, programmable computers and they would yeah. I, I I'm sure that if we looked it up we could find some elaborate term about um, uh, uh, I don't know uh, spool operated computers they would never think up a word as short as app no. Um, and if 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 we have we we do now have reinforced steel uh we have reinforced glass and we don't call it glass steel uh, No. you know no. we just call it safety glass basically in automobiles well yeah, yeah. Um, so by, so by and large uh science fiction's uh assumptions about how we would talk in the future have been historically pretty comical not very good um and even uh even when you start talking about uh uh, surfing the web, um, you would have people literally surfing the web in uh, uh, in, in novels like Neuromancer, you know, but it doesn't mean what we mean by surfing the web today. No, no, not at all.
1: J- just as something like a, a, an iPad, which is basically the young lady's Victorian primer from uh, Neil Stevenson from the Diamond yeah. Age, really isn't what he imagined either, but it's sort of kind of like it, you know, but the language yeah, around I mean- it is different and all that kind of thing
0: the 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 way we talk about things is, is is very very hard to predict language is hard to predict but one things I one of the things I wish science fiction writers would realize is that uh, there there are patterns by which the English language uh, internationalizes itself and condenses words and adopts other words uh, one of the most interesting treatments of future speak in um, sort of semi science fiction book was in Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange yeah where he imagined a future which was uh, a kind of street slang based partly on cockney and partly on russian yeah um and it was very imaginative and it turns out he was dead wrong but it's a cool language and it was he was thinking in the right way he was thinking language is going to evolve by accretion of multiple cultures yeah uh, and by um by 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 some forms of slang which uh which you know which are going to derive from technologies we can't quite imagine yet that's true i mean app for example here's, here's another example droid uh, because that's my phone. Even yes. 20 years ago, anybody in the science fiction world, if you say droid, is going to think nothing but Star Wars. That's right. R2-D2. So now we think 52% of the, cell, of, of, of the, of the mobile phone,
1: phone <laughs> market. <laughs> well, wow, nobody really predicted that. Well, nobody predicted how casual we were going to be about video phones either. I mean, look, you and I had a chat right. yesterday, and it was an entirely casual thing to just fire up video and, and use it. And it actually did cross my mind while we were talking. That this is the future, as we keep saying. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk
0: about them as video phones. You know, we 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 talk them about as Skype or iChat or some some uh, sort of um, proprietary name. But the video phone, when I think of video phone, I think of AT and T trying to introduce these things in the nineteen sixties when nobody wanted them. Yeah, I think that's. Um, so, yeah. And v- the video phone technology is not new. What's new is having a video phone in your pocket.
1: And on that happy note, Gary, we're gonna wind up.
0: Because okay, we
1: because we've got hours of podcasts to send out to these people that we're going to you know in in sort of inflict upon them in the coming weeks. And and hopefully and
0: can, sorry? Yeah, and they can listen to people far more coherent than we are on this very podcast. Yeah.
1: And hopefully in coming weeks we might get a little bit more coherent because we we are talking about planning some more and all that kind of thing. So hopefully the, the podcast will continue to be of interest. But at the very least, it's good to be back.
0: It's good to be back and we'll be doing this on a regular basis no conventions for a while no awards to worry about except world fantasy for a while and we can just talk about
1: stuff okay i look forward to it till then take care gary same to you okay
0: bye